Check Me Out is a production of Panhandle PBS and Amarillo College's FM 90 and is recorded at AC's Washington Street campus. Facebook is actually a... a it's a, suburbia. A suburbia, right. It really wow. kind of is. Facebook is, at least, in the sense that if someone is being kind of obnoxious, you all... <laughs> talk about that person behind their back or you like <laughs> you send a message over right there. It's right like, the party like what line. is going on with that guy right or like <laughs> or you don't you don't like their thing because like <laughs> but then it's like you see that somebody else like that thing is like okay that guy's suspicious now too you will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. I'm Hillary Holsey, and today we are talking about the town and the city in literature. And we are joined by two very special guests. They were on an episode of Check Me Out last season. Yes, the the, t- the title of that episode was Drink the Kool-Aid. So if you want to, if you hear this one, you like it, you want to hear more from our guests, go listen to that. But I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So I'll start and that with one you. was about cult fiction. Right? Yes. And this one's about like cities and urbanism and hmm. suburbanism. And the, okay, I'm Jonathan Baker. I don't know. I, I felt like I would do your job for you. Thank for you. A second. I needed you to. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm in that place today. I'm sorry. I'm a <laughs> bit of a control freak. <laughs> You're I'm, fine. I'm Jonathan Baker. I, um, I'm, what, what am I? I'm a writer. I'm, that's what I do for a living. I'm a journalist and I write novels and I, uh, write copy for various nefarious, uh, corporations and that's my job. And I live in Amarillo. And you know a lot. I do. I do. I guess so. You do. Sure. I think you know a lot. Okay. Hey, and I'm Chris Hudson. I'm a professor at Amarillo College, an English professor, so I read, write, and teach about books. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you both back. And, I mean, what are you guys talking about? You, The topic, the subtopics are urbanism, suburbanism, and ruralism in literature. So can we break each one of those down into what they mean, why you categorize them that way, yeah, do that. we could do that. You want to do that, Chris? You do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, urbanism, well, if you think about it, every book is probably in one of those places, an urban place, a suburban place, or a rural place, right? Or, yeah, or I guess if it's science fiction, it could be on the moon or something like that. But there's probably a city on the moon, so... Um, it just depends on how you how you deal with uh, the topics. Urbanism is obviously about city life. There's lots of there are certain authors that are attached to certain cities like Balzac in Paris or Bello in Chicago and you know uh, sure. Jonathan Leithman in New York City, Armistead Maupin in San Francisco, or uh, yeah, right. yes, or uh, there are a lot of New York. Half of the American authors in the American canon write about New York City, it feels like. Right, exactly. And then the rural uh, novel can be a lot of different things. It can be about country life. It can be about small town life. be about the frontier. A lot of early American literature deals a lot with going to the frontier, and it was a big blow to the American psyche in 1890 when Frederick Jackson Turner said the frontier was closed and I just looked up the other day about what a frontier meant and it meant uh, fewer than two people per square mile so wow that's pretty pretty smallish 
And Frederick Jackson Turner said this at the 1893 Chicago Columbian Exposition, which was the World's Fair. And it is maybe the most, I don't don't know what you say, like paradigm shifting statement made in the history of American literary studies or American, even American intellectual studies like this, because we defined ourselves as Americans by the existence of the frontier and manifest destiny and all this kind of stuff. So when this very important guy at this very important event comes out, you know, everybody was at the Chicago, one out of every three Americans made it to Chicago for this event. Crazy. Imagine that. Um, anyway, when he said that it, uh, it, it changed almost, it almost instantly changed the American consciousness and how we thought about ourselves, or at least how intellectuals who were present there thought about, and then they started to write about it and talk about it. And over time, um, it changed how we think, you know, we stopped thinking about, uh, an, a sort of empty frontier West that we could go to, to renew ourselves. Right. It was called the safety valve, right? Right. It was the safety valve for urbanism, basically to get out of the violence and danger of cities, which is a present metaphor really throughout American history. Cotton Mather, uh, one of the Puritan forefathers who came over said that he was escaping, that they were escaping the depravity of European cities to go to the American Strand. Right. Or the, or the Strand, your bookstore comes from. Um, and if you think about it, the first, maybe the first American work of literature was a sermon given on a boat on the way over here. About the Arabella a, sermon? Uh, about a shining city on a hill. Right, yeah. So if you think about that, even before we got here, we're thinking about being able to see long distances and about like big, vast, empty spaces. So that's how we, and I'm going to talk about this a lot, I think, because it's so interesting to watch the development of how Americans think about space and how that changed and how that change was visible after the Industrial Revolution in American literature. That sounds boring, but it's going to be super interesting when I talk about it. Maybe I'll put, maybe I'll drop some F-bombs. Or something. <laughs> that always makes things more interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> Spices it up a little. But so. I wonder what, what we're, when we're talking about the frontier, though, uh, we're also part of the early idea was agrarianism through Jefferson and through right. uh, Hector St. John Crevacour in his uh, letters from an American farmer. So agrarianism is, for me, also starts bleeding into that suburban spot, the middle ground that we're talking about uh, uh, also. So urbanism, suburbanism, and, and, uh, and the rural. The yeah. agrarian kind, as, as uh, time moves on, kind of bleeds into the ideas of the suburban. But the suburban starts picking up a lot of negative connotations mm-hmm. as well, the sort of monotony banality, homogeneity of American life. So. so let me ask you this, because and we should say this, Chris, your PhD uh, dissertation involved sub- the suburbs, right? right? So you've thought about this a lot. So that's right. why I'm going to ask you this. Like, is the modern concept of a suburb a new phenomenon as far as like within the last, you know, within the last 150 years or something? Where did suburbs exist before the Industrial Revolution uh, and if so, were they the same kind of idea, or w- did they were they a reaction to uh, industrial revolution style cities like densely packed cities? A little bit of both. I mean, suburbs officially were 
met outside of the city walls. And so they were the place that wasn't really safe and wasn't protected. Uh, that would be your uh, the medieval uh, suburb. Uh, it was really in Britain in the 18, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Robert Fishman has a book called Bourgeois, uh, Bourgeois Utopias. And it's about setting up uh, urban, uh, suburban spaces outside of London. And these were fairly fancy kind of places, you know, big big gardens, the attempt to sort of bleed uh, and blend the, uh, the rural and the, and the urban. And the United States had a suburban boom in the 1880s, which would have been industrial revolution-oriented. Right. Again in the People 19- fleeing factory smog and stuff like that. Right. right. Again in the 1920s, and then, of course, the post-war suburb, which right. a lot of that was... The 1920s and 30s, it was people fleeing the, the great black migration, right? Right. Like, right. But also the, um, the post-war, a lot of people forget that... Uh, Besides the GI, the need for GI housing, it was also a fear of getting bombed sure. uh, in urban places. So the, yeah. the, uh, the urban became a kind of a target. So. Yeah. And that's white flight. When people say white flight, right? Like that's 1920s through the 1980s. I mean, at some point in the 1990s, the tide began to shift and, young uh, white millennials and upper upper middle class millennials are moving back into urban centers. Right. You see that in Amarillo. People are trying to, they're building these condos. I mean. Gentrification. My I mean, whole, right. My whole yeah. life. And I wonder that about it in downtown Amarillo. Is it gentrification if nobody lives there? <laughs> you know, it's just been, my whole life, downtown Amarillo has been a ghost town. And I'd heard tales about Polk Street dragging Polk in the mm-hmm. 1950s and stuff like that. And now it's like, and I, as such an urbanist, like I've lived in Chicago and New York and whatever, I'm such a like city guy. And I always would look longingly at downtown Amarillo, our meager little downtown and go, come on, buddy. You know, mm-hmm. and I know that there are some other people and that's starting to happen. But anyway, so that's happening in other places. You go to Fort Worth, you know, it was, it was Cowtown you know, 30 years ago, and now it's like this toddling, like, you know, urban swanky spot downtown, you know. So are there books for each? I mean, you guys are talking about being able to track through history, through these novels, how this has evolved and things like that. Are there like quintessential books that you can think of that represent these different times in history? Totally. I think so. I think we could do that. Sure. I mean, I'm, I, I'm an Americanist, so, so which is a pretentious way of saying I like focus on American books. Well, um, that's fine. And uh, so, I mean, I it's funny when I went to college, I was like, I'm going to be a. I I even went to Moscow and I studied Russian literature for a while, and I was like, I'm going to be a Russian literature scholar. And then I was like, uh, well, I had one teacher actually at WT, Bonnie McDonald, and she's an Americanist, and she totally changed my life. I was like, I, cause I had some resentments toward America. Like you, can you say that? Like I had some, I was troubled by like, um, I, I always wanted to be like this outsider guy, you know, or whatever. And I reading American literature, I started to realize that all of the great American authors were outsiders. Like, and I, and I identified so much with them I, what do I know from Russia? <laughs> you know, like so. Anyway, so uh, so that's a long way of saying I think b- 
both Chris and I's examples will be from, American. from the American canon. That's and I want to give fine. you a little background to bio because um, just to go off that, I grew up at Amarillo. And I remember thinking about Amarillo being a suburb of nowhere, that it didn't yeah. have the, it had a suburban kind of uh, flavor to it, but there wasn't the urban core. And you do hear people say that, to. the world's biggest suburb. And I've heard people say this about Amarillo. Right. And then um, I went uh, to UT Austin, and um, when it came time to finally decide something to do for dissertation, I started thinking of suburbs. And one of my directors, Anthony Hilfer, had written a book called The Revolt from the Village about novels in the from the teens to the 30s that were that he talked about as being a uh, criticism of rural stupidity and and uh, blandness and things like that and then I did the suburb and he told me that I destroyed his book um, because I, I switched it to to suburbs but one of the books there is Babbitt a book that most people know and uh, Babbitt oh, is by Sinclair Lewis by, right and Babbitt is a businessman in a basically a suburban development called Floral Heights and uh, that's a suburb of something called Zenith City, the sort of classic uh, stand-in for every big city, uh, big city. And it's just a, it's about poor uh, poor Babbitt's life and his struggle to have imagination and individuality, where all these forces are trying to make him the same. And so he reacts by going off and <laughs> is it. Joe Paradise, do you remember this? He I, runs off to the country to try to get back to the wilderness and the, the frontier uh, spirit and ends up with some, you know, Yahoo named Joe Paradise God, who, like, runs. That. I read that book years ago. Yeah, he but. runs, uh, uh, like, a rural, like a dude ranch or something for <laughs> disaffected suburbanites who want to. Uh, Babbitt was after something like a fairy girl, right, in his imagination. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Well, he's this, he's kind of a, it's almost like the same as the death of a salesman kind of character. These characters who are being crushed under the wheels of American can doism, you know? And, uh, and Babbitt is this, uh, so Sinclair Lewis was from um, uh, Minnesota. So he was a Midwesterner. And in the 1920s, there was this huge fad. Uh, that never quite went away about of these self-help books and these guys who were like, you know, the most famous one is uh, The Power of Positive Thinking. Right. Babbitt is one of those guys, in the beginning at least. You know, he's like, he's like an up-and-coming heterosexual white male. You know, he's the American dream, you know. It's boosterism. It, is right, one of exactly. One things that yeah. Lewis is trying to get at. And he's like, he's joining all these clubs and things in the city to like, um, you know, that are like, uh, the Ch Chamber of Commerce and that kind of stuff. And uh, like I said, it's been forever since I read that book. But but that's what that book is about. Is like and that's sort of the perils of urbanism in a way. Right. And then the the post war example of something similar is the Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, Sloan Wilson. That was right. about nineteen mid mid fifties, and that was about the the crushing conformity of. I think he was an advertising uh, person. Mm. There's lots of right. ad men. In, uh, in suburban literature that take the train into New York City. Mad Men is almost can be traced directly back to that one novel. Exactly. 
But we should backtrack a little bit and talk about the 19th century and where all this stuff comes from, right? And the most, probably the most important idea or group of ideas in American history, which was when, well, the original Americans, of course, were the natives, but when the original European Americans came, they wanted to think of a of an untouched paradise, you know? And that's why the natives were problematic to that idea, obviously. But tabula rasa, they wanted to think of a blank slate. And they were fleeing all kinds of nastiness and not, not just bigotries and things, but like old outmoded ways of thinking, they thought. Or a lot of them were Puritans and, and thought that their ways of, that the ways of thinking had been corrupted. So they wanted to replace European ways of thinking with something in America. And, uh, you know, in Europe, it was all this statuary and architecture and all that kind of stuff. So when they got to America, they found new statuary and architecture. They found new gods in the landscape. So more than any place in the history of the world, the land is important here. Like the natural formations, like you, we don't need to find God in old books. We don't need to find truth in old, musty books. We can find it in the soil, you know? And so that is, that's a very noble idea. And, you know, that's you know, some of our greatest intellectuals were on that train, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Emerson, right. the transcendentalists. Like, they were all about, you don't need, you can find whatever you need inside yourself. That's what Thoreau was doing at Walden Pond. He was, like, going out and just hammering down into the soil of himself to find whatever truth lie there. But what people forget is that he was also translating the, the Upanishads while he was out there. Like, this is a deeply intellectual man who had a lot of books, and he was hanging out with Emerson in his off time. And Emerson is, you know, one of the greatest minds in the history of the world. He's kind of forgotten today. But he is, I think every country has its uh, sort of er intellect. In England, you would probably say it's Shakespeare. In France, it's probably Montaigne. In Germany, it's maybe Goethe, Goethe I would say. Yeah. So... Um, in America, it's it's Ralph Waldo Emerson. So many of the ideas about America come from his writings in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And he was the sort of fountainhead of transcendentalism, this idea that that man is perfectible, that we can find, we can, you know, and he was actually like ostracized from Yale Divinity School for saying that, that man, we can become like Christ by um, going into the world and just kind of listening and feeling and like, and going into ourselves. And so anyway, so th these ideas are very powerful, so powerful that they run through a major strain of American thought today. They're also very dangerous because it was only a short jump from that to the voice of America in Mark Twain's novel, uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, being a 13-year-old illiterate kid. Because why read books if you can find anything you need you know, and, and it's true, like Huckleberry Finn had this innate goodness about him. And he, he, he was fighting against all these forces, but he somehow knew from what was within him that the way Jim was being treated was wrong and so forth. So, But he lights out for the territories at the end and, and escapes the things. I wanted to interrupt because before we get too far past the transcendentalists, because there's this great uh, part in Leo Marx's book called The Machine in the Garden, where he's looking at Hawthorne's journals, and it's where he takes his uh, idea for the book, and that 
Hawthorne is out basically doing the Emersonian Thoreau thing, and he hears the railroad train, and he it breaks his sense of this idol, this perfect rural idol, and so it's the the intrusion basically of civilization, which you can read as urbanism, uh, into that that ruralism, right? That idol. A book that Hawthorne wrote, one of his uh, romances, the Blythdale Romance, is at least I argue in, uh, in some and things that I've done before is one of the first uh, clear suburban uh, novels in uh, the United States mm-hmm. because the Blythdale community is an attempt to set up a utopian community mm-hmm. and it's uh, outside of Boston somewhere. And uh, it was based on it was based on uh, Brooks Farm, right. the transcendentalist uh, attempt at a, at a uh, utopian community and. Hawthorne really has a has a strange uh, position that he takes on the on the utopians trying to if you you want to read Coverdale the narrator as a as a Hawthorne then uh, it's certainly uh, he's certainly uh, Coverdale's suspect of it. A lot of people now, and I think it's a great reading of that novel, say that it's a murder mystery. Yeah. But, um, and that Coverdale's the murderer, and yeah. the whole thing is just a big cover-up. But Yeah, well, th- there's this other strain that Hawthorne was a member of in Melville. And um, so at that oh, time no. of the Transcendentalists... Not uh, that again. Uh, I, I love Melville. What do you, <laughs> so at the time of the... Tra- I love the Transcendentalists, too. But too. I'm, I'm, it's almost like America is of two minds. And you can see the birth of urbanism in the other strain, in the Hawthorne, Melville, Poe strain. And interestingly, you see this same strain in Russian literature. And they both kind of branch off. I don't want to get too far afield here, but they both kind of branch off from what was um, these weird German tales in the late 19th or late 18th and early 19th century. Um, German romanticism, especially these guys like E.T.A. Hoffman, who wrote the story that the... Uh, that the uh, Nutcracker ballet is based on. So these weird stories, and America took that and ran with it early with the stories of Washington Irving, this kind of vibe, but it never felt truly American. It still felt kind of like German stories based in America. Anyway, so that strain runs through, and but those guys were, uh, were a reaction against the transcendentalists who believed... If you go down, deep, 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 down into a, Americans or to people, you will find goodness. And that is essentially almost an enlightenment way of looking at at the world or at humanity. And then this other strain is like, if you go down there, you should go down there. You should explore down there, but you're probably not going to like what you find. It's scary down there. And that starts early in the United States, Charles Brodkin Brown. Right. Charles Brockton Brown, who's maybe the first true American goodish to goodish novelist, right? <laughs> yeah, talk about. Do you want to talk about him? Well, are you saying? Can I just clarify? So you're saying that the transcendentalists went one way, and then Hawthorne and Melville went the other. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. I am Hawthorne, Melville, and Poe. You might say, and they're this is all the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, but they were coming off of probably Washington Irving and also Charles Brockton Brown, who wrote these books about like sleepwalkers uh, and like haunted ventriloquist stuff, really weird stuff. So America was weird from the beginning, (laughs) um, which is awesome. But um, 
Poe was Poe was all about that stuff. And Melville, I mean, the white whale in in Moby Dick is essentially like that thing down deep inside of us that can kill us. That's what he was talking about. And that is a very anti, there's even a part in Moby Dick where he kind of lashes out at the transcendentalists where the, the narrator, uh, Ishmael, is on the, the crow's nest and he's, the, the thing is like, the boat is leaning out over the water and he's looking down to where he might plunge to his death. God, I wish I could remember this quote. Do you know it? But he's feeling that fear inside of himself, and he's like, explain this, you know, explain this fear to me, transcendentalists, you you know. But he says it in a really cool way. (laughs) (laughs) You know. You know, not like me, but like, cool. Um, So the thing I was originally getting at is that strain of we don't need books, we only need the land, can be traced directly to American modern conservatism. So American, American conservatism and that idea that pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't need uh, outside forces to help you. Like if, if something is wrong, just go fix it. Go out to the forest and come back and you should be fixed. And if you're not, then you are weak. You know, that has a very noble origin and that can be traced even back to who was a liberal in many ways, you know, Thomas Jefferson, but the yeoman farmer, this like work is, is all we need, you know, like, right. He, he actually said, uh, in, in one of his, uh, one of his pieces that he wanted the United States to remain totally agrarian throughout its history. What he wanted to do was to ship agrarian agricultural products to Europe. And this is how the, the United States would make its fortune uh, sending primary goods off to be manufactured over there. We don't want the manufacturers. That's industrialism. That's filth and smog and, you know, all those kinds of things. Just ask any Latin American country how well that worked out. Yeah, I'm you sure. Know, shipping off uh, primary goods to yeah. the manufacturing So, course. wait, are you saying Thomas Jefferson wasn't perfect? <laughs> I've, I've heard. Oh, God. <laughs> Next, you'll tell me. No. <laughs> um, so, is so? Would you see urban? Like, did the authors then see civilization and the building of urban spaces as like this huge disruption to this, or what? How does that come in? Well, I after? think. It, I mean, I think it starts with uh, Sir Thomas More uh, with Utopia, right? Uh, he wrote that because that was European city. That was in the fifteenth century. Yeah. Okay. Um, or 16? It was 1516. Okay, 1516. Okay. He was upset by how uh, European cities were becoming too crowded and uh, crime-ridden and, and all those kinds of things. So he, he set out, lit out for the territories, right? In kind of a prescient, uh, the Americas. It would have been just shortly after Spain, right, had uh, mm-hmm. encountered the Americas and... So he was basing it on some rumor about things that were going on out there, out west, and uh, set up his pretty strange little utopia, which uh, was actually, I talk about it in other things as a suburb, because it was at one time attached to the mainland, and the King Cronus, I think his name was, or something, dug up the whole attachment so that the ocean came in between. 
and cut it off. But Utopia, you know, had that strange uh, total setup that later Ebenezer, Ebenezer Howard uh, and Frederick Law Olmsted and yeah. Patrick Geddes, all these people who started talking about garden cities and right. all those things really based a lot of that on. These were like 19th century agrarian American like theorists who were like trying to build. Ver- uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, for example, is the most famous uh, um, landscape architect. He designed Central Park and and um, many other things, including the University of Chicago. And like, so you were asking about if cities were a reaction to this. I will say there's a book by Lewis Mumford in the, written in the nineteen early nineteen sixties. City in history. The city in history, yeah, yeah uh, which was really about well, it's about the city. In history, um, and uh, what? <laughs> but even even this guy, this towering American intellectual of the twentieth century, was deeply, deeply suspicious of cities, and that's in the American nature in so many ways. Uh, I remember when I first read this architect, Rim Koolhaas, who's awesome and wrote this book about New York. Um, when he when he when I first read him saying congestion is good, I was like, "You go." Bro, like, like yeah. say it was nice to read someone saying that because to me congestion is good and it uh, be like it's the uh, death and life of great American cities. Jane well, Jacobs, the I was going to mention that. that Lewis Mumford was published writing. within a couple of years, and they were the two giants of American urban theory on almost opposite ends of the in opposite corners of the boxing ring. Right? You want to tell? Tell us about Jane Jacobs. Well, Jacobs was interested in reestablishing the walking city. The, this, the kind of city where you can where you can walk um, that you know you have corners you have neighborhood stores and um, and um, there is a density right, right. an urban density where um, there's community and uh, uh, shared sometimes shared commons you know behind right. the behind the apartment blocks and things like that and she was interested in in that kind of city a lot of it was reaction both Mumford and Jacobs to suburban monotony, Levitt mm. towns that were just architecturally crap, right? Right. Just, uh, the what Peter Pete Seeger had that store had that song, uh, "Little Boxes." Yeah, right? yeah. Was, um, <laughs> so They were also reacting to Robert Moses and what he had done to New York City because they were both witness to that. Um, Robert Moses is the most powerful city planner in the history of America. Like. He, he, you know, the, the, the BQE, the Brooklyn yeah. Queens Expressway, but really he, re- he changed the, and all, a lot of the projects in New York City um, were his, of his devising and, and development on Long Island and a trans, lot of things. Trans Bronx. Highway. He did a lot of good yeah. things that people forget. He built a lot of parks and uh, Lincoln Center, for example, was his doing, but, but really like he made life worse for the impoverished New Yorker in ways, in myriad, myriad ways. And both of both Jane Jacobs and, and uh, Lewis Mumford saw this and reacted differently to it. Lewis Mumford envisioned these. He was, I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes, but he was reacting to uh, uh, Le Corbusier, uh, the, the French um, city modern, kind of modernist architect who was really into these ideas of these spacious, what looked like projects, essentially, but they were these utopian ideas, and Lewis Mumford thought this would work. Now we know that projects don't work for the exact reasons that Jane Jacobs was saying. There's no eyes on the street. Like in those, if you've ever watched The Wire, like those Brooklyn projects, 
there's just plenty of space to deal drugs in those like nooks and crannies of, of projects. And Jane Jacobs was saying, okay, you've got a furniture store, you've got a pet store, you've got a drug store. And each one of those has a proprietor. And each one of those is looking out the window a little bit during the day while they're working. And in that way, you build a community. It's safe for your kids to be walking to school and stuff like that because and I, when I lived in New York, I would drop the key off to my apartment in the little bodega downstairs if someone was coming by to pick something up or something. And that guy, you know, this little Iranian man would hold on to my key. And, and there was a little community that was built in that way. Yeah, that, that's what surprised me when I lived in New York was the, the neighborhood of just the few blocks around where you lived. You you knew everybody. You could, it's just like every place you could eat, every place you could buy things, uh, you know, drop your key off, all those kinds of things. But Mumford and Lercuisier and others were into regional planning, right. which is really a lot like uh, Moore's Utopia, where there's this sort of interspersed things with some urban areas, uh, open space, housing, all these kinds of things. They're all kind of separated out and Le uh, Corbusier called it Radial City, right. I think. In his and book, Towards a New Architecture. And I said he was right. French a minute ago, but I think he's Dutch. I don't know. Look it up. It doesn't matter that much. But <laughs> They just blew up his last uh, apartment complex in St. Louis. That was a... Really? Yeah. I didn't know about this. A while this. back. Uh, yeah. yeah. So some um, of those big apartment blocks are projects. So I have a question. Okay. So you guys keep talking about... I mean, Utopia is, is something in and of itself, but... Is it always that what a utopia is at one time, then it changes like as time progresses into something dystopic? Because you mentioned that millennials are now kind of going back into the city, whereas before, like in the 50s, you had people moving away. Is it Mm -hmm. just, is it how the culture evolves? I mean, Mm -hmm. I... Well, why why do we keep bringing up utopia? You do, it's it's a common thing. the, The history of utopian literature is a history in the way that science fiction is a history of the way people think about where society might be heading or what it might look like, good or bad. Uh, Utopian and dystopian literature are the way that we think about the spaces we live in and how we interact with each other and how that might look in a perfect sense or in, in a, you know, in its worst sort of final. And where they intersect really is the suburb because the suburb is supposed to be this place out of city, out of the out of the density, out of the crime, a uh, little bit of space, you know, the yard, it's where the lawn comes from, all of that. Yet a lot of people talk when they when you talk about suburb, they think about conformity, they talk they think about homogeneity, conservatism, uh, things like that. And you think uh, John Cheever would be a perfect author to talk about because his he wrote a novel one of his novels called bullet park uh, which is you know bullet park is actually the name of the suburb that the family lives in bullet right there's violence there and there's this father-son violence that happens at a miniature golf course yeah and uh cheever would always say that his he He's probably would be considered the suburban writer. So he was in the 1950s. Uh, he, he won the Pulitzer for his collection of short stories, right. the stories of John Cheever. He also wrote the Wapshot Chronicles, which I think won something. But um, but 1950s, but all of his characters, again, Mad Men. Like, you can trace Mad Men back directly to John Cheever. His characters generally lived, like, out on Long Island or in Connecticut or in New Jersey or whatever and would commute into New York City. 
Right. And the, and the story that, well, Bullet Park is uh, interesting because of all the violence and, and it begins with a line that says something like, the setting, it seems, is the heart of the matter. So really trying to pinpoint this kind of lifestyle. But his most, probably his most famous story, The Swimmer, right, right, is really brings in all of these things that we've been talking about because the main character who's basically you think has lost his mind. He's, he's basically been divorced and thrown out of his house and um, he, he's not, he's denying this. He's in super denial. So he starts in his suburb to plan to swim across back to his house, swim in everybody's pool all the way across. And it's along a highway and uh, he'll stop and have a drink, a cocktail, and, and keep swimming. Uh, and he becomes more and more disturbed as he goes along. He gets cold. A storm comes up. But it's, it's described as if he's swimming across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is this tie-in with this whole idea of the progress of, of the United States. And he finally gets home, and he finds that it's shut up and uh, closed up. Nobody's there. It's been... Uh, neglected for a good long while. So he's been out of his mind somewhere. But the the suburban neighbors um, sort of react pretty nonchalantly to his swimming across their their yards and stopping in for cocktails. But it's really it's a really cool story. That kind of leads me to something I wanted to talk about before, which is what happened in the late 19th century, around the turn of the century, around Frederick Jackson Turner's time, 1893, there was a there was a change, a, a massive shift, and Frederick Jackson Turner was part of that. But it was really like the Industrial Revolution. The real sort of I feel like that was the tipping point when America kind of became an urban place, and the way that we stopped thinking about ourselves was jarring because before that we defined ourselves by the horizon. You see the horizon constantly in 19th century literature, especially in the transcendentalists. Um, And uh, this idea that you can see the West, you can see the setting sun, you can see forever. That, especially in the Texas panhandle, is so much of who we are, right? That kind of defines us. But what happens when you're an immigrant living in a country on the Lower East Side, where you can't even see to the end of the street because there's another block and it's this jumble of streets. A horizon does not exist on the Lower East Side of New York. You cannot see the horizon. All you see is blocked views. So what happens? You start looking for horizons within yourself. So there was a shift there from defining ourselves by the landscape to defining ourselves by our own inner landscape. And that's where the real schism happened. And it really starts to show up in Stephen Crane, who wrote, uh, he wrote The Red Badge of Courage, which is about the Civil War, and that's his most famous novel. But he wrote a lot, he was was a journalist in New York City, and a real impassioned, he died really young, like 28 or something ridiculous. Um, he, He went down to the city courthouse in New York and defended a prostitute, like, for some reason, just because he, you know, but... This idea, he was he was a very passionate guy, and he was especially passionate about um, people in uh, low income, you know, immigrant neighborhoods who he covered with his uh, in his journalism. He wrote a book called Maggie, a girl of the streets that I'm specifically thinking about. And the people in this book are really struggling with how to define themselves in a country 
where they don't live in the place that everybody's always talking about, the horizon, the shiny horizon place, you know? So they live in a begrimed, you know, uh, sinful world that is not that place. And how do they start to, like, create a new kind of morality? And that's really what happened, is a new kind of morality began to arise. And again, like you can trace this almost to the to the two political parties, the two the two Americas that people are always talking about today, the um, the America that is based on the idea of like renewal in the earth and in the landscape, and the um, one that's based on we gotta sort of help each other out. We're all in the soup together. Like, and if if you're struggling, then it's not your fault. It's the sort of environment around you. You know. And that was a very important notion at this time because before in the 19th century, there was an idea that people who were poor and were committing murders and, and you know, other sins in the, in the slums of the cities, that they were somehow bad people. Like, you know, they were these, you know, dirty immigrants, unwashed, and they came from places where they weren't taught, you know, any morality. And that's what... And around this time, people started to go, no, no, like, and this really started with a guy named Jacob Rees, who was a photographer. He was a Dutch photographer. And this was the beginning of flash photography. So this, that technology revolutionized America, because he would take his cameras into these flop houses and tenements, and he would basically just kick the door in and go, surprise, click. And then all these like, all these immigrants, kids, you know, sleeping 10, 12 to a floor, you know, you would catch them like sleeping and waking up and stuff like that. And he published a book of it called How the Other Half Lives, which is where we get that term, How the Other Half Lives. That book, the visual representation of the people, these children, especially living in poverty or working in factories in the cities, changed the way people started to think like, wait a second, that could be my kid. Maybe these aren't like innately bad people. Maybe their environment is in some way responsible for their for their travails. Yeah, I think there's also, it's an interesting point because I think that there's a certain thing that happens in writing as well around the time, and that's a more sociological view of writing and authors taking a very specific, uh, having narrators that are kind of like sociologists who are looking like life in the iron mills and then like Dreiser and sister Carrie. Right. Uh, Naturalism it's called, right? Right. Uh, but it, it continues on um, the, the novels of the, of the post-war suburban boom. There's one character, there's uh couple of authors and an actual sociologist, Herbert Gans wrote a book called The Levittowners, and he bought a house in Levittown with a picture window and sat in front of the picture window and just watched people. Remind me of a, like a Star Trek Next Generation thing where they put, <laughs> they, right. they plop down a people behind some kind of force field where they can watch a culture go around and do mm-hmm. stuff and they're not supposed to ever show themselves. And so, you know, Herbert Gans was sitting in the suburban house watching watching the suburbanites go around. And there's a lot of novels where that's just exactly the case. They, they treat characters like they're these subjects of a sociological study yeah. and follow them around. It's a real interesting narrative change. Yeah, so, and that's not specifically, but I, the naturalism thing that I mentioned was like the next sort of outgrowth of that. Sorry, Hillary. What trends do you see now in terms of space? I don't know exactly space... Uh, 
what have I been reading? I, I just went on a little kick of reading books that talked about uh, 9-11, where 9-11 showed up in, in books. And uh, that has a certain, you know, obvious urbanism about it. But I don't, uh, I haven't really read any, like, great gentrification novel. Uh, I will say, yet. I think what's happening is dystopia in so many different ways. Like, the books that are popular, so many of them are about some troubling future. Like, we're obviously all freaked out about what's happening to the earth, especially people who read books. And so they, uh, so a lot of the books that are coming out aren't necessarily about climate change, but they're about, like, what happens after. And, you know, and this goes back to the road and, and books like that, but there are also like uh, Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel, which is a is a dystopian novel that almost won the National Book Award three or four years ago. And there have been just a ton of those kinds of books coming out, not just in YA or which is young adult, but um, but in American literature. There I is, mean, like there is something I can't books. remember what it's called <laughs> the, the genre, the ecological dystopian novel uh, that uh, I've seen it. Uh, talked about some i don't know specifically richard powers just won the pulitzer prize for a book about trees so you know that's obviously on everyone's mind like nature and the sort of precariousness of nature and by extension the precariousness of our own existence within nature there's you know there's an old what the edward uh albie's book uh the monkey wrench gang 70s i guess it's about a group uh, in the Southwest to go and vandalize and blow up equipment for building highways and bridges in the in the Southwest and ruining the, the landscape. So it's been around as well. Yeah, right. So it's about how we're ruining things, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that literature always taps into fears and what people are really like the subconscious of the the mass subconscious. Uh, of man or humankind, sorry. It's interesting that, you know, we started talking about how it's this frontier and then it, it almost goes back to that, but then it's, I've seen obviously my areas films, but right. Um, you know, Wally where, right. It, yeah, exactly. We go to the moon and then everything kind of grows back over all of these landscapes. Wally's a perfect example, you yeah. know, and that's a that's a masterpiece in its own right. Yes. Why do you never pitch in with film stuff? Because we could. <laughs> well, it's a book I, podcast. I have, so I have I a question know. about film. I sure. was just I'm I'm preparing a class for over at the college, and I, and I'm doing some social uh, work on social media, and I was uh, there's a line in the Social Network, the little the strange kind of uh, Zuckerberg bio, and it says. I can't remember who says it. He says, first we lived on the farms, then we lived in the cities. Now we're going to live in the internet. And I was reading Zadie Smith's... I'll be uh, in the city. (laughs) I I was reading Zadie Smith's uh, review of the movie and of another book coming out about... uh, That was coming out. This is a 2010 essay about social media. And she started saying that... And this just fit in with everything that I was thinking about, that the internet is like a suburb. She seriously says this, that the reason Facebook is so bland and the reason it's blue is because Zuckerberg can't see green and red. He can only see blue. He's colorblind. And that the weird little things like poking and all that are from dull suburban people in their suburban world. (laughs) Zadie Smith says this, that this, that Facebook is actually a, 
It's suburbia. Suburbia, right. It really kind of is. Facebook is, at least, in the sense that if someone is being kind of obnoxious, you all... (laughs) Talk about that person behind their back, or you like <laughs> you send a message over right, there, it's right? Like, the like party what line. is going on with that guy, right? Or like, <laughs> or you don't you don't like their thing because like, <laughs> but then it's like you see that somebody else liked that thing. It's like okay, that guy's suspicious now too. Like, um, <laughs> it's like that, that's a good point to make. Uh, I never thought about that. Yeah, that uh, way at all. But wow. I just, it, it, it seems to me sometimes in American criticism that whenever there's something that's bad, particularly bad for intellectuals, typically means uh, accepted by the masses. Right, um, which means suburb, like suburban has come a, become a buzzword for that. So what happens yeah. to the suburbs when all of the upper middle class people move in to the city? I don't know. It's like, it's like the country's breathing, you know, the, the city goes out into the suburbs so the people that were in the suburbs go back into the city and there's this uh, well you know a lot of the african americans on the south side of chicago are moving to the suburbs for good reason so that they don't get shot to death and mm-hmm. that their kids live you know and so maybe they abandon all those houses and then all those yuppies on the north side move down there and turn them into panini shops and yeah, stuff i like think that. that's happening in houston in <laughs> north houston that used to be totally that was totally white suburbia and a lot of this was helped by government policies like right. redlining and things like that. that yeah. There's a lot of uh, books about. But the inner city people started moving north in Houston. And uh, I think in Houston, they don't really go in. They just keep going north. They're, they're near Dallas right mm-hmm. now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> what is your fascination with this? Like, why, why these books? Why these novels? What, how did you get into this? I, I mean, I really did start. It, it, it's been an... It's been a topic in my mind since I was about 15. Uh, the, I, I, I was a little punk kid uh, here and then in Austin, and uh, we were, you know, the, the blank generation, the idea of, of being in a suburb of nowhere. There wasn't the, the idea of a suburb was that you had the cultural connection besides the, uh, the work and everything. There was the idea that the culture stuff also happened in the city. Sometimes the culture stuff isn't good, but if you want to, you can take, you can go into the city and see the culture stuff. And when I was, when I was a kid here, I was very, there there ain't no culture anywhere near here. Right. (laughs) I've since changed my mind about that quite a bit, but the idea of, of suburbs and of places uh, and of space, like uh, really, really caught me in grad school. And so I started reading around that. Yeah. And you are wearing your Buzzcocks shirt today. Yes, sir. There's a rule that not a lot of people know, but if you go to a college and there's a professor who's wearing a Buzzcock shirt, that's the professor you want to take. You always want to take that guy's class or that lady's class. I agree. I need to get one. Yes. Yes. Okay. So so for me, I don't know. You know, I grew up in the Texas Panhandle too. I always felt like I was a bookish kid. I was bullied. I didn't always like fit in. And so for me, books... Um, so many, so many great books, but especially Gatsby was a big one for me to watch this guy who was from rural North Dakota, go to New York city and become this like amazing flashy, you know, like cool gangster character. Like that's the kind of, there's this old, you know, uh, story of reinvention in America where you go to the West and, you know, uh, Davy Crockett was fleeing you know, his creditors and Sam Houston was fleeing, you know, like P 
people in Tennessee who hated him or whatever. And he came here and he to Texas and he became governor and whatever. That wasn't my story. Like my story was like, I want to leave the, the flatlands and go to the city and reinvent myself and go from being Jay Gatz to being Jay Gatsby. So th- there was that. There, the the city held so much allure for me, mystery. When you come from a place where you can see everything, I've since come to d- understand that there's so much mystery out here on the panhand- in the panhandle of, of its own. But when you can see everything, when you can see the whole horizon, it feels like I just felt very seen. I felt like I was on display all the time. And in the city, you're, you're not on display. And there's a sense of mystery. There's a sense that you can be surprised at any moment. Anything could come around the corner and a new... A new life could start. You could, you know, any anything could happen. And th- I never got that sense in the panhandle. So that's why, personally, I became uh, enamored of urban stories and books and things like that. Yeah. And so you know, you've already mentioned several books that I want to go check out. Um, what, for someone who, you know, relates to you and maybe hasn't read these types of novels but wants to, what is the, what's the starting point? What, what book should they start with? You know which one I'm going to choose, right? Uh, Moby Dick. No, Mart- <laughs> Martin Dressler. Martin Dressler. Yes. There's a book that won the Pulitzer Prize in the early 90s called Martin Dressler, The Tale of an American Dreamer, which it's a, it's a very clunky title, and I think that's part of the reason a lot of people haven't read it. And it's by a guy named Stephen Milhauser, who... Uh, Remember the, this movie, The Illusionist, that came out mm-hmm. like 10 years ago about a magician? Was um, David Bowie in that one? No, that was the other one. That, oh. that was The Prestige. prestige. Oh. Two, okay. magi- two magician movies came out at the same time. Okay. The Illusionist was uh, based on a Stephen Milhauser story. Okay. He writes stuff like that, like these kind of ma- American magic realism things. And this is a book set in the turn of the century in New York City about a kid who uh, starts out kind of, working in a cigar shop in the city and grows up to become this massive hotel magnate. But he's always got this, like he, he can't build enough things to fill the hole inside him. It sounds cliche, but it, but it's really amazing to read because it, he, he creates all these like underground, like there are underground Ferris wheels and like all these like magical kinds of realms that he creates. And it's almost, it's almost science fiction, set in, you know, turn of the century in New York, but it was a very moving and powerful book for me when I read it, you know, and I was like 20, 20, something like that. Like that book really made me fall in love with urbanism in New York city. Like nothing ever had before. Like I, I was just like, like longing, you know, in my soul after I read that book for a long time. I still think about that book all the time. Well, I just, I recently read it, uh, because, because I don't, because I was talking about it, told me to, but, um, I, what I found interesting about it, and it's related to the space that uh, you were asking about earlier is the, the main characters turn as the hotels get bigger. And as you're talking about, have all these fantastic areas, but there's also like, parks and uh, there's kind of rural kind of areas yeah. inside. They become, you know, immense, but it's that turning inside. It's turning away from the city, right. really, right? Yeah. They're in the city, and he's and he's completely disappointed at the end because the city at first, he starts with a cafe for breakfast for people, coffee and breakfast going to work in the morning. And then he it, they turn into these immense wonderlands, really, and... But people stop 
wanting to be there. They stop wanting to be inside of it because they're, they're, they're almost hermetically sealed off from yeah. the city. And that turning away from the city was an idea that I thought was mm-hmm. interesting when reading it if, when we were going to be talking about this. Yeah, yeah. What about um, you? What book would you say? Um, there's so, well, I, there's so many really. I really like... I really like Bullet Park. If when you were talking about or or Cheever short stories, I think are a great way to start to uh, to look at the way place and psychology intermix um, the 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 sort of contemporary, particularly male, I guess, white male psyche is uh, presented in in Cheever really well. A lot of Urban stuff uh, like uh, Don DeLillo's uh, Underworld, yeah. uh, Jonathan Lethan's uh, novels, Motherless Brooklyn, right. Chronic City, Fortress Gun with of occasional Solid. music, which is a really yeah. weird urban. Right. Yeah, it's like talking baby heads and you know, like animals that talk and right. I don't know. Fortress <laughs> of Solitude. There's, yeah, there's just my of, that's my least favorite one. There's a lot of I don't weed know in all of these. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of smoking of weed. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the I think a novel. If you go back to that paradigm shift that you're talking about, the uh, the World's Fair in 1893, Thomas Pynchon's book uh, Against the Day is basically about that paradigm shift. Uh, in a very strange kind of. Uh, kind of book and then the book preceding that another pension book mason and dixon mm-hmm. is about mapping out the the continent, the continent right yeah and, and it has a were beaver in it i just want to throw that in there a were beaver a were beaver right. so a talking duck too yeah right? i think that if you if that doesn't make you want to read it that something is terribly wrong with you right were beaver i don't know i just <laughs> That's American American literature, you know, a hundred years after hundred and fifty years after Emerson, you know, and we from, find ourselves at the Ware Beaver. Right. And from a book that you really dislike, Crying About Forty Nine. I uh, yeah, I uh, it's like being punched in the face by pretentious like it, like a really it does pretentious have guy. A, it does have a great description of of the contemporary American landscape. They where Oedipa Moss is looking out over Southern California and describes it as a circuit board and that kind of connection between the yeah uh, the no he's a brilliant guy i just don't love that book but uh you know i i have issues with delillo too a lot of those guys after the you know in the 1960s 70s the postmodernist it just doesn't ring my bell yeah you know but Not cheever like whales man, do I do love whales, but also Cheever. Like you, everybody, go read Cheever and update the, the rabbit novels. Sure, right. yeah. The swimmer was the swimmer. Sh- and swimmer. my favorite one this Christmas. Everyone read this uh, story called "Christmas Is a Sad Season for the Poor," and it's a really good story by John Cheever. Everyone should read at Christmas time. Okay. Okay. It's I like think that's wa- where we have to stop. It's like watching Die Hard. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast again. I, I could listen to you talk for three more hours. Um, three more hours? Three more hours. Well, three more hours. <laughs> has it been three hours? No, it feels it like it. It probably has. No. Excellent editing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening, book lovers. And remember to click subscribe wherever you may be listening to this podcast. Special thanks goes to The Mag 7 for providing us with music, 
Cullen Lutz, and Stevie Brashears for designing us such a cool logo. See you next time.